0: We're staying in our series on the New Testament book of Acts because this passage has some uh, uniquely relevant things to say to us about God's choice of leaders. This account of the early church took a turn over the last two weeks as we read from chapter 8 that persecution was breaking out against the Christians in Jerusalem. Uh, Some are getting killed, and the first century Inspector Javert Who is hunting down these followers of Christ is a Pharisee named Saul. But in today's passage, the hunter becomes the hunted. Let's read Acts chapter 9, starting in verse 1. Listen carefully. These are God's words. Meanwhile, Saul was still breathing out murderous threats against the Lord's disciples. He went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues in Damascus, so that if he found any there who belonged to the way, whether men or women, he might take them as prisoners to Jerusalem. As he neared Damascus on his journey, suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. He fell to the ground and heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, he replied. Now get up and go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. The men traveling with Saul stood there speechless. They heard the sound, but did not see anyone. Saul got up from the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand into Damascus. For three days he was blind and did not eat or drink anything. In Damascus, there was a disciple named Ananias. The Lord called him in a vision, Ananias. Yes, Lord, he answered. The Lord told him, go to the house of Judas on Straight Street and ask for a man from Tarsus, Named Saul, for he is praying. "'In a vision he has seen a man named Ananias "'come and place his hands on him to restore his sight. "'Lord,' Ananias answered, "'I have heard many reports about this man "'and all the harm he has done to your saints in Jerusalem, "'and he has come here with authority from the chief priests "'to arrest all who call on your name.' "'The Lord said to Ananias, "'Go. "'This man is my chosen instrument to carry my name "'before the Gentiles and their kings.' And before the people of Israel, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Then Ananias went to the house and entered it. Placing his hands on Saul, he said, "'Brother Saul, the Lord, Jesus, who appeared to you on the road as you were coming here, has sent me so that you may see again and be filled with the Holy Spirit.' Immediately something like scales fell from Saul's eyes And he could see again. He got up and was baptized. And after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, this conversion of a terrible enemy into your son, a beloved servant, changed history. And we pray, Father, that we wouldn't see it simply as a milestone uh, 2,000 years ago, but that we would hear you speak freshly and clearly to us through Acts chapter 9 today. Speak, O Lord, if your servants are lessening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Three words are going to help us walk through Acts chapter 9. Turning, seeing, and choosing. Turning, seeing, choosing. We we first met Saul at the beginning of chapter 8 as the only person named in the crowd in Jerusalem that was either participating in or cheering on the mob that stoned Stephen to death. And uh, Saul was like the mafia boss looking out his tinted limo, nodding with approval at a job well done. The hit was successful. And then we read about Saul hunting down the Christians in Jerusalem. Now he's not satisfied. He wants to chase down the disciples who fled from the persecution north through Judea, beyond Samaria, into Syria. You can take a look at this map uh, on the screen. Um, Presumably uh, Damascus, one of the largest cities in Syria, was a common place to, to flee. And I know, again, it's hard to see that on the screen. But um, you can see Syria in uh, the black letters on the right side in the green. Um, The city of of Damascus is below that white box. And Saul is actually from Tarsus, up in the orange, top right corner of the Mediterranean Sea, um, the city called Tarsus. He's chasing down these Christians. He gets the chief priest's blessing to do whatever it takes to bring these heretics to justice. And on the way, what happens next is so important to the explosive growth of the early church that it's not only described here in Acts chapter 9, but it's recounted twice more by the Apostle Paul, his new name, in chapter 22, to the crowds in Jerusalem who are trying to uh, now stone him to death, turn about, and then later on in chapter 26 when he's preaching to Roman authorities while he's in prison in Caesarea on the uh, coast of the Mediterranean Sea three times we get this account. And and the second uh, and third accounts fill in some of the blanks as Paul thinks back to his encounter with Jesus. What was it about? Verse three, a light from heaven flashed around him. Uh, The the account in chapter 22 tells us that this happened about noon. Even if it was a, a cloudy day, Light that is so brilliant that knocks everyone in the traveling party to the ground, chapter 26 tells us that, and renders them speechless, strongly suggests this is of supernatural origin. God is appearing, and Saul knows that this is a divine encounter. He doesn't know who it is just yet. When he says Lord in verse 5, that word in the original Greek could be used as a uh, means of respect. Like you and I might say to someone in authority, sir, uh, they would say, Lord, kurios. He doesn't know who it is yet, but here's the answer. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. Those words upended Saul's life because throughout his life, he had been so certain that he was in the right. And in this last stage, he was so certain that he was acting in God's interests as he hunted down these followers of Christ. He was so certain that they were heretics and that he felt he was duty-bound to protect the, the honor of God's name by stamping out this movement following after the dead Nazarene, Jesus. And then the Son of God the Messiah himself, this very same Jesus, appears to him in glorious fashion, and Saul realizes that everything he has lived for has been totally backwards. That's the first directional change we'll look at, we'll notice with conversion. Everything turns upside down. Some of you come to GRC regularly even though you aren't quite sure about some things, about who God is and about who you are, that God has this holy standard, that you are a sinner and that you need a Savior, some, some of you are here and you're not quite sure. Are, are those things really true? They may be comfortable enough that you'll come week after week and listen. They may not be comfortable enough or convicting enough for you to stand upon those truths to define your life, let alone eternal life. And we're always glad you're here, exploring and wrestling with these things. But if and when you place your faith in Jesus Christ, if and when you become a Christian, it will not simply involve adding something incrementally to your life, like taking on a new sport or a hobby, you know, needing to figure out how something new now fits into your calendar amongst all the other competing Priorities. It won't simply mean taking into account another perspective on how you should live. So you listen to Doctor Phil and Doctor Oz and now Jesus of Nazareth from the Bible. You know that that's not what it means to become a Christian. Becoming a Christian means that everything is upended, everything is turned upside down. Your your life um, is shown to be backwards, and now it's set right side up. I don't mean to include in that picture the suggestion that becoming a Christian means you'd have to sell everything and give it to the poor and live like a hermit. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. What I am saying is that your centering point drastically shifts from being oriented around self to now being oriented around Jesus, and nothing is the same. The directional change in conversion, the first one we look at is it's upside down. What happens here to Saul undermines a popular attitude that uh, the world has about spirituality, and it's this. If you're sincere in your beliefs, that's what matters. Hmm. Uh, let's just, for the record, test that out on some contemporary example that we'd find in this morning's newspaper. Um, we would say if we applied that test of sincerity for faith... ISIS sincerely and passionately believes that its spiritual practices and beliefs are right. And who are we to say that ISIS is wrong? The, the irony is that in our relativistic culture, which says you believe what you believe, I believe what I believe, and we'll just you know, keep, uh, uh, we'll respect each other. The irony is that our relativistic culture has no problem, at least in the public sphere, denouncing ISIS as a cancer, a scourge upon the world that needs to be dealt with decisively. I, I think it, the, the, the silence from relativism is perhaps because uh, no relativist has the courage to be consistent in their worldview to say, well, who are we to tell ISIS how to act and how to believe? You know, that's none of our business. And no one is consistent enough in that relativistic belief to say that publicly. And, and there's, a, there's a sense of rightness among everyone who looks at what is happening in the Middle East and says, that's wrong. Relativism has no wrong. Everything is what you believe and what I believe. All beliefs, we would say from a biblical worldview, cannot be equally okay. All beliefs need to be particularly assessed and evaluated against what standard, we would say. Um, All all beliefs can't simply be measured by the sincerity of their beliefs. When we see it here in Acts chapter 9, Saul was absolutely sincere. He was zealous. He, He... He was convinced that he was in the right, but he was dead wrong in the direction he was heading in. How do we assess? How do we evaluate um, the effectiveness or the validity or the truth of belief? That's what Josh started our service uh, by, by pointing us to, truth. Faith of any sort needs to be evaluated, and the only way we can know what's true versus what's false is by comparing it to what God has revealed about himself to humanity, not just talking about head knowledge. You know, memorize scripture and that's enough. Um, Saul knew his Old Testament scriptures backwards and forwards. He was missing something fundamental, though. Um, he had been trained by the best rabbis. His um, his family pedigree, his education, his zeal for God were unparalleled. Later in the, the book of Philippians, he'll recount this his spiritual resume, and he will say, without any arrogance, no one could touch me but it was nothing. It was, it, was, it was meaningless. To Saul, with that kind of background, Jesus was a fraud and a heretic. And when this Jesus appeared to him on the road to Damascus, Saul knew all the more powerfully with truth behind him now in the depths of his being that this Jesus was Lord and Messiah and King, the one who alone deserves worship and obedience, the one he had been persecuting by chasing down his followers, the one that Saul had hated with a self-righteous indignation. Conversion means that everything now starts with Jesus' perfect righteousness and no longer self's so-called righteousness, something Saul's life so powerfully displayed, knowing he was right, heading in the wrong direction the first directional change of conversion is everything turns upside down. What you think is white is black because if you don't have the spirit of Christ pointing you, centering you around Jesus, you're orienting. There, there is no true north. Your true north is actually south. Everything's backwards. Jesus then gives Saul a simple command, verse 6. Now, get up. Now, obviously, at the first most mundane level, that involves Saul picking up his sorry self from the dirt, right, and standing up before his king. But there's more significance to this word in this context especially. It's the same word, get up or rise, that we find in um, John chapter 6 verse 38. And listen to the context of this word. It's underlined for you on the screen. for Jesus says, For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all that he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. It's the same word. We're going to see a little bit more in depth the dynamics behind that word next week. But Jesus is basically saying in John, and he's enacting in Acts chapter 9, this is the work that he came to do. What is that work? It's raising the dead. It's addressing lifelessness, spiritual deadness. It's um, transforming enemies of God, dead in transgressions, Ephesians 2, into not only friends of God, but sons and daughters, intimately united With him, Jesus is applying resurrection power to Saul, and there's a little double entendre, I think, when he says, Get up, or we might properly translate that, Rise, rise from what? Rise from the deadness of your own self salvation plan, rise from thinking that your goodness is the center of your righteousness when it is no righteousness at all, rise. And embrace all that I have in store for you. There's a second directional change involved with conversion, and it's turning around. The first one is upside down. The second one is turning around. Uh, Jump ahead to verse 17 in our text. Ananias uh, says, Brother Saul, as he enters this house where he knows from the vision Saul is waiting for him, brother Saul. It was an act of faith on Ananias' part because Saul had been the equivalent of the most feared SS guard in Nazi Germany. He was the one you avoided at all costs. He was the one whose name you feared if you were a Christian in in that day and age. Ananias was afraid to come near this guy, but my guess is that one look at Saul revealed a completely transformed man who had turned around humbled by his encounter with Jesus on the Damascus Road, then living in uh, blindness for three days, unable to even eat or drink. We're not not sure if he was unable or if he chose not to, but he lost his appetite. And uh, likely prayerfully looking to Jesus for his new life's mission. He had turned around. Beginning of Acts... Peter had preached his first sermon at Pentecost to the crowd in Jerusalem, and they said, what shall we do? And Peter simply says, repent and believe. Those two words comprise conversion. That's what Peter said, be converted. Uh, And and that directional orientation has um, two dynamics, okay? Um, It's about turning with two dimensions. Repentance is turning away from Away from what? Away from sin. And belief is turning towards Jesus. Repentance is turning away from death, and belief is turning toward life. The second directional change in conversion is turning around and seeing, I was heading in this direction, but it was for my destruction. And I see that, and now I need to do a, an about-face uh, you know one hundred eighty degree turn is uh, we, we call it an about face right military uh, soldiers use that about face but but th- there's something rich about that term versus one hundred eighty degrees that is more mathematic. Saul needed to instead of facing or opposing Jesus as his his opponent, his enemy, he needed to turn around his face and work with Jesus to face to reach all of those who are still blind to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's where we go secondly, from turning to seeing. Here's an educated guess as to one of the scripture passages Saul would have been meditating on in three days of blindness. Couldn't do anything, lost his appetite. Uh, this Pharisee was a guy who had memorized large portions of the Hebrew scriptures of the Old Testament. And, and I I bet that this was one of the passages that came to his mind, especially as, as the spirit was prompting him, Isaiah 59:10 "Like the blind, we grope along the wall, feeling our way like men without eyes. At midday, we stumble as if it were twilight. Among the strong, we are like the dead." I think that powerfully preached to Saul over three days. I think I he think was marinating in those truths, wondering perhaps to some extent what it all would mean. The irony here is that Saul's lifelong spiritual blindness was healed by the merciful intervention of Christ through his servant Ananias, even uh, after physical blindness had struck him. Right? Isn't that irony? Um, Jesus, not not through Ananias, Jesus mercifully intervenes and shows himself to uh, Saul, um, healing his spiritual blindness, and immediately he's struck by physical blindness that awaits the intervention of another servant. Maybe Jesus knew that Saul needed to be in the dark for three days to fully grasp how blind he had been. Saul, do you realize everything, everything, about your direction was wrong. Everything you had conceived about sin and salvation and God and his full revelation in Jesus was wrong. Saul, do you realize that? Um, I think it took Saul far more than three days. The three days in the dark was the beginning. And, and by the time Ananias showed up, Saul may have seen his three days in darkness as a, as a powerful way of identifying with his Savior who spent three days in the darkness of the tomb in death. The reality is that, as marvelously as it worked out in Saul's life, none of us would ever make that trade, giving up our spiritual blindness and accepting physical blindness. I don't say that because we would be only afraid of not seeing physically. I say that because none of us could ever notice and admit, let alone address, our spiritual blindness. When we're spiritually blind, blind, we just think everyone else can't see and that we have perfect eyesight. It requires life-giving resurrection power to be poured out on spiritual blindness for you to even begin to see, my goodness, white was black, light was dark, north was south, in order to begin to see that I was living an upside-down, wrong direction kind of life. And only then, after resurrection power was applied, could Paul later say in Philippians chapter 3, I think he was thinking about this, I want to know Christ and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, three days in darkness, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection of the dead. Darkness always shies away from the light just like roaches scurry away from the light. I, I, I'll never forget staying over on a summer weekend at my cousin's house in uh, Queens. Um, and this suburban boy was shocked at um, this sport that occurred late at night when my cousin um, armed us with rolled up magazines and went into the dark kitchen and said, ready? <laughs> Some of you know what's coming. And he flipped on the light and went on a murderous rampage. And this suburban boy had seen nothing like it. And, uh, you know, uh, now, now I appreciate hunting, but back then, even a roach, I, I was appalled. Um, roaches long for the, the darkness. And as soon as the light comes, they're gone in fear, right? Light and darkness, blindness and sight are metaphors that are consistently used in Scripture to talk about salvation, and in Saul's life, it's profoundly illustrated. Uh, Paul will also later write in 2 Corinthians chapter four, verse four, "The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God." None of us ever notice our spiritual blindness until Jesus brings new life, renovates what's broken turns the holy spirit light on and then exposes the darkness exposes what's ugly in our hearts and saul would spend a lifetime still believing that he was the foremost of all sinners first timothy chapter 1 chief among sinners no one could touch him why because he knew how dark and blind he had been and he knew that the only reason he was walking in the light, being able to see full spiritual truth, was with the mercy and compassion and grace of God. Here's further irony Jesus, here in Acts 9, decides that he's going to use a man who had been so spiritually blind in order to minister to the blind and heal them. But that irony is no surprise because this is the pattern of the church. God uses the weak to shame the strong. He uses the foolish to shame the wise. He uses those of us who are willing to admit the extent of our brokenness to minister to those who are broken, not because we've figured it out, not because we fixed ourselves, but because in his mercy, he's given us access into the only thing that can heal. Resurrection power applied through his Holy Spirit. In the Acts chapter 26, recounting of his conversion, We learn from Saul that Jesus also said this to him, I am sending you to the Gentiles to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins. The primary instrument Jesus chose to bring his gospel to the Gentiles was the most Jewish guy he could find a radically conservative, overzealous, nationalistic, ultra-Orthodox Pharisee who says that God does not have a sense of humor. Turning, upside down, turning around, seeing, there's this metaphor of light and darkness and blindness and sight illustrated in Saul's life and now choosing. Lastly, can you imagine being Ananias? You're living your quiet life, not bothering anybody, Um, learning and growing in your newfound faith in the Messiah, who is Jesus, and in a vision, Jesus rudely interrupts your nice, quiet life. Go to Saul and heal his blindness. Let me paraphrase Ananias' response in verses 13 and 14 with a little bit of liberty. Um, With all due respect, God, no way. (laughs) have you noticed what he is doing to your people? God, are you paying attention? No way, no way. Dialogue, though, is not on God's agenda in this conversation. His answer to Ananias in verse 15 is simply, go, this man is my chosen instrument. That's it. Saul's missionary ministry will shape the course of Western civilization and arguably global Christianity today. When God chooses His instruments, He goes way against the grain. I mean, look at the front row center. Could you ever have thought this would be the next crop of (laughs) leaders in Christ's church? God goes way against the grain. Think about the foundation Jesus set with the selection of his original 12 apostles, okay? Uh, Listen to this imaginative document. It's a uh, a letter. To Jesus, son of Joseph, at the Woodcrafters Carpenter Shop, Nazareth, from Jordan Management Consultants in Jerusalem. Uh, You'll you'll see some uh, in the next slide, but uh, not there yet. Thank you for submitting the resumes of the 12 men you have picked for management positions in your new organization. Each of them has been evaluated through a battery of tests and personal interviews with our psychologist. It is our collective opinion that most of your nominees are lacking in background, education, and vocational aptitude for the type of enterprise you are undertaking. They do not have any team concept. Simon Peter is emotionally unstable and given to fits of temper. Andrew has absolutely no leadership qualities. The brothers James and John place personal interest above company loyalty. They involve their mother, of all people. Thomas demonstrates, doubting Thomas, demonstrates a questioning attitude that may undermine morale. Matthew has been blacklisted by the Greater Jerusalem Better Business Bureau. Matthew, the text collector. James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus have radical leanings and each registered a high score on the manic-depressive scale. One of the candidates, however, shows great potential. He is a man of great ability and resourcefulness. He interacts with people well. He has a keen business mind, and he has contacts in high places. He is highly motivated, ambitious, and responsible. We therefore recommend Judas Iscariot as your controller and right-hand man. Who's the fool, and who's the wise one? How does God choose instruments to lead his church his bride. Would he ever lead us astray in protecting his precious possession, his bride? Members of GRC, nominations end in two weeks. Teresa tells me we have very few, but your many nominations over the years have resulted in a crop, a harvest of eight men and women to lead Christ's church. Would you continue to prayerfully consider in that mailing you got about six weeks ago who else you might identify as someone who needs to be trained and identified. Congregation at large, the reality we know in a broken world is that you will ebb and flow with respect and admiration and frustration at your leaders. It It will be a natural reality in a fallen world. As you ebb and flow, the pattern of God's choosing of instruments, unlikely as we are, to use, be used by Him effectively, it means that you should be impressed and you should value, and this should calibrate your hearts and minds, not according to worldly wisdom or strength, not impressive intellects, not sharp business decisions that would be applauded by the best practices in your industry, But instead, you should be shaped by, your thinking and your heart should be calibrated according to weakness and humility, which accesses Holy Spirit power. Remember that quote I've shared from the very beginning of the Acts series, you cannot be full of the Holy Spirit so long as you are full of yourself. And I know I can speak on behalf of the session in saying with great confidence that these men and women are not full of themselves, they're full of Jesus it's not to say that they're exempt from selfish thinking or um, moments of arrogance and conceit, but we have seen, and I believe you have seen as well, a desire for Jesus' glory instead of a pursuit of self's glory. And you should be shaped by and calibrated according to a measure of prayerful dependence upon God, who alone accomplishes anything eternally significant. Not frustrated by the lack of decisions, the lack of ministries, the lack of coordination, drop balls here and there, but energized by prayerful dependence, humility, Christ-like character. Moments, even in crisis, when men and women tasked with this weight of leadership Uh, are are not pushing our own agendas, but desire more than anything else the glory of Jesus and the peace, purity, unity, and edification of His church as the, uh, the questions outlined. New elders, deacons, and deaconesses, just a brief word. Why did God call you? Why did our session approve you? Why did these members nominate and end up electing you, not because of anything you've done, but because of His mercy, not because of your pedigree, but because of your willingness to admit that you are nothing apart from Christ, and at the same time, your confidence that you are everything with Christ. That's the mark of a spiritual leader. I am nothing apart from Christ. I know that but I am everything when I am with Christ. Everything that you have, every bit of status, every bit of recognition, every, every ounce of influence, every opportunity that God brings you to um, speak and act in his name as an ambassador is God provided through his spirit and as Jesus glorifying because his glory is our end. We must decrease, John the Baptist said, so that Jesus might increase. That's the essence of your calling as a servant leader in Christ's church. Last thoughts. In chapter 26, recounting by Saul, um, Jesus says to Saul that he has been kicking against the goads. What are goads? Um, Farmers and and those with livestock would naturally, in the first century, understand that phrase, right? A, A goad is a spur or a cattle prod to, um, uh, to discipline or to guide. And Jesus is saying that Saul had been kicking against Jesus' disciplinary guiding hand. Saul had been resisting. Saul was being stubborn, even before Acts chapter nine on the road to Damascus. Maybe Saul had started realizing that his super moral religiosity wasn't getting him anywhere. It wasn't making him feel at peace with God. Maybe um, he he would identify, had he lived today, looking back, to to Martin Luther, the great church reformer, uh, who became angry at God the more and more Luther tried to maintain his moral righteousness. He began to resent God and his holy law because God's word only made Luther feel more and more deserving of judgment. And he directed that, How, how could you do this to me? Where where is freedom and forgiveness, Uh, freedom from shame and guilt? All he felt was condemnation. I think Saul perhaps was uh, the the predecessor to Martin Luther in feeling this angst. And here Saul's encounter with Jesus brought him to the end of himself. Jesus said to him, in other words, you will never be good enough for me, Saul. Your self-salvation plan is... Is doomed to failure. Another 20 years of the same aren't gonna change a thing. When you admit that, whatever your version is, being a good person, being a hard worker, being a good citizen, being, you know, a good friend or a or parent or child, uh, being a good member of the church and doing the right things, and, and not coloring outside the lines, whatever your version is, when you can admit you will never be good enough. Your self-salvation project is doomed to failure when you can humbly and dependently look outside of yourself to the cross of Jesus Christ, to the person of Jesus who went to the cross. You can alone experience the freedom and the forgiveness and acceptance that you've always craved. Those cannot come through any other means. It's not your ongoing moral work. It's Jesus finished work on the cross. It's not what you need to do that will define your eternity. It's what Jesus has already done that requires you to place your full faith in. That alone describes how Saul the persecutor could transform into Paul the apostle. It's the reality that he came to understand. Quoted in Galatians 3 from Deuteronomy, "'Cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree.'" The old Saul saw the humiliated Jesus hanging on a Roman cross and just knew that no man who was hung on a tree could possibly be blessed by God. He was a fraud. He was a heretic. He got what he deserved. But the new Paul, with spirit eyes, saw, as he put it in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, that God made him, Jesus, who had no sin, to be sin, a curse for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Paul uh, was transformed from Saul. And the only way such a radical enemy could be changed, not only into a trusted and effective instrument, but into a beloved son, is through the reality that Jesus received the curse upon himself that Saul's sin deserved. That Jesus initiated this great exchange This unfair, unjust, doesn't make any sense transaction. Jesus says to any believer who trusts in Him, you give me all of your sin, all of your failed attempts, all of your being too filled with yourself, and I will pay the price on the cross of Calvary, and I will give you back my perfect righteousness earned through obedience to my Father. I will accept your hell and you will experience my heaven. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel that lies at the heart of Christianity. And this great exchange, this gospel reality, is the only reason that these servant leaders and any servant leaders could possibly, let alone effectively, serve the king and his church. The gift of God starts with his son and it flows through all of us who trust in him and follow after him and yield to him and are filled with his Holy Spirit. May Jesus be honored and may his bride, the church of Jesus Christ, Grace Redeemer Church here, be richly blessed. Let's pray. Lord, We marvel this morning at elders, deacons, and deaconesses, but uh, that all pales in comparison, Lord, to the marvel uh, Sunday after Sunday, day after day, that Jesus took upon Himself the hell that our sin deserves, and that Jesus gives us back through faith in Him, the heaven that He earned. We rest in that best of news, that gospel for the glory of Jesus and the good of his bride, the church, us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.